Book Two, Chapter Four of the History of Pompey the Little. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of Pompey the Little, or the Life and Adventures of a Lapdog by Francis Coventry. Book Two, Chapter Four. Another long chapter of characters. The fair princess of lace and ribbons who now took possession of our hero, carried him home in her arms, extremely well pleased with her present. She quickly grew exceeding fond of him, as all his owners had been before her, and to express her love, ornamented his neck with a cambric ruff. The sight of this happening to please some ladies of quality, who came by accident to the shop, they resolved to imitate it, and from thence arose the modern fashion of ladies wearing ruffs about their necks. Three or four days after he was settled in these apartments, as he was striking and sporting one morning about the shop, a young lady who lodged in the house came downstairs and accosted her mistress in the following terms. I want to see some ribbons, if you please, madame, to match my blue gown, for Lady Bab Frightful is to call upon Mamma this evening to carry us to the play to see Ortheller Whore of Venus which they say is one of the finest plays that ever was acted. Yes, really, mem, tis a very engaging play to be sure, replied the milliner. Indeed, I think it one of the masterpieces of the English stage. But you mistake a little, I fancy, miss, in the naming of it, for Shakespeare, I believe, wrote it Othello, Moor of Venice. Venice, mem, is a famous town or city somewhere or other, where Othello runs away with a rich heiress in the night-time, and marries her privately at the fleet. By very odd luck, he was created Lord High Admiral that very night, and goes out to fight the Turks, and takes his wife along with him to the wars. And there, mem, he grows jealous of her, only because she happens to have lost a handkerchief, which he gave her when he came according to her. It was a muslin handkerchief, mem, spotted with strawberries and because she can't find it, he beats her in the most unmerciful manner, and at last smothers her between two feather-beds. "'Does he indeed?' cries the young lady. "'Well, I hate a jealous man of all things in nature. A jealous man is my particular aversion. But howsoever, no matter what the play is, you know, ma'am, we do but see it, for the pleasure of a play is to show one's self in the boxes, and see the company and all that. Yes, ma'am, this here is the sort of ribbons I want, only if you please to let me see some of a paler blue. While the milliner was taking down some fresh bandboxes, the young lady turning around happened to spy Pompey in a corner of the shop. Oh, heavens! cries she, as soon as she cast her eyes upon him. What a delightful little dog is there! Pray, dear Mrs. Pincushion, do tell me how long you have been in possession of that charming little beauty. Mrs. Pincushion replied that he had been in her possession about a week, and was given her by a lady of celebrated beauty, whom she had the honor of serving. Well, if I am not amazed to think how she could part with him, cries the young lady. Sure, ma'am, she must be a woman of no taste in the world for I never saw anything so charmingly handsome since the hour I was born. Pray, dear Mrs. Pincushion, what is his name? Being informed that he was called Pompey, 
she snatched him up in her arms, kissed him with great transport, and poured forth the following torrent of nonsense upon him. Oh, you sweet little Pompey, you most delightful little Pompey, you dear heavenly jewel, you most charming little paroquet, I will kiss you, you little beauty, I will, I will, I'll kiss you and hug you and kiss you to death. Then turning again to the milliner, Dear Mrs. Pincushion, added she, you must give me leave to carry him upstairs, to show him to papa and mamma, for in all my days I never beheld so divine a creature. Being now served with her blue ribbons, and having received the milliner's consent to her request, she flew upstairs in all imaginable haste, with the dog in her arms. But before we relate the reception she met with, let us prepare the reader with a short description of her parents. Sir Thomas Frippery, the father of this young lady, had formerly enjoyed a little post in Queen Anne's court, which entitled him to a knighthood in consequence of his office, though the salary of it was very inconsiderable, and by no means equal to the grandeur he affected. On the death of the queen he lost this employment, and was obliged to retire into the country, where he gave himself the airs of a minister of state, set up for an oracle of politics, and endeavoured to persuade his country neighbours that he had been very intimate with Lord Oxford, and very deep in the transactions of those times. The same ridiculous vanity pursued him through every article of his life, and though his estate is known hardly to amount to three hundred pounds a year, he laboured to make people believe that it exceeded as many thousands. For this purpose, whatever he was obliged to do out of frugality, he was sure to put off with a pretense of taste, and always disguised his economy under the mask of fashion and the mode. For instance, when he laid down his coach, he boasted everywhere how much better it was to hire job-horses as occasion required than to run the hazard of accidents by keeping them. That coachmen were such villainous rascals, it was impossible to put any confidence in them that going into dirty stables to overlook their management, and treading up to one's knees in horse-dung, was extremely disagreeable to people of fashion, and therefore for his part he had laid down his coach to avoid the trouble and anxiety of keeping horses. When his country neighbours dined with him, whose ignorance he thought he could impose on, he would give them alder wine and swear it was hermitage, call a gammon of bacon a bay on ham, and put off the commonest homemade cheese for the best parmesan that ever came into England, which he said had been sent him as a present by a young nobleman of his acquaintance then on his travels. About once in three years he brought his wife and family to town, which served for matter of conversation to them during the two intermediate years that were spent in the country, and they looked forward to the winter of pleasure with as much rapture and expectation as the Reverend Mr. Wooden and some other Christians do their millennium. During the time of his residence in London, Sir Thomas every morning attended the levies of ministers to beg the restitution of his old place, or an appointment to a new one, which he said he would receive with the most grateful acknowledgments, and discharge in any manner they should please to prescribe. Yet whether it was that His Majesty's ministers were insensible of his merits, or could find no place suited to his abilities, the unhappy knight profited little by his court attendance, and might as well have saved himself the expense of a triennial journey to London. 
but though these expeditions did not increase his fortune, they added much to his vanity, and he returned into the country new-laden with stories to amuse his ignorant neighbors. He talked of his good friend, my good Lord Blank, with the greatest familiarity, and related conversations that had passed at the Duke of Blank's table, with as much circumstance and peculiarity as if he had been present at them. The last article of vanity we shall mention were his clothes, which gives the finishing stroke to his character, for he chose rather to wear the rags of old finery, which had been made up in the reign of Queen Anne, than to submit to plain clothes of a modern make and fashion. He fancied the poor people in his neighborhood were to be awed with the sight of tarnished lace, and wherever he went, the gold fringe fell from his person so plentifully that you might at any time trace his footsteps by the relics of finery which he left behind him. Lady Frippery, his accomplished spouse, did not fall short of her husband in any of these perfections, but rather improved them with new graces of her own. For having been something of a beauty in her youth, she still retained all the scornful airs and languishing disdain which she had formerly practiced to her dying lovers. They had one only daughter, who having been educated all her life at home under her parents, was now become a masterpiece of folly, vanity, and impertinence. She had not one gesture or motion that was natural. Her mouth never opened without some ridiculous grimace. Her voice had learnt a tone and accent foreign to itself. Her eyes squinted with endeavouring to look alluring, and all her limbs were distorted with affectation. Yet she fancied herself so well-bred, genteel and engaging, that it was impossible for any man to look on her without admiration, and was always talking about taste and the mode. It happened now to be the London winter with this amiable family, and they were crowded into scanty lodgings on a milliner's first floor, consisting only of a dining-room, a bedchamber, and a closet. The dining-room was set apart for the reception of company, Sir Thomas and his lady took possession of the chamber, and Miss slept in a little tent-bed occasionally stuffed into the closet. Such was the family to whom our hero was now to be introduced. There is nothing more droll and diverting than the morning dresses of people, who being exceedingly poor and yet exceedingly proud, affect to make a great figure with a very little fortune. The expense they were at abroad obliges them to double their frugality at home, and as their chief happiness consists in displaying themselves to the eye of the world, consequently when they are out of its eye, nothing is too dirty or too ragged for them to wear. Now as nobody ever had the vanity of appearance more than the family we have been describing, it will be easily believed that in their own apartments behind the scenes of the world they did not appear to the greatest advantage, and indeed there was something so singularly odd in their dress and employments, at the moment our hero was presented to them, that we cannot help endeavouring to set their image before the reader. Sir Thomas was shaving himself before a looking-glass in his bedchamber, habited in the rags of an old nightgown, which about thirty years before had been red damask. All his face and more than half his head were covered with soap suds. Only on his crown hung a flimsy green silk nightcap made in the shape of a sugar loaf. He had on a very dirty nightshirt, richly tinctured with perspiration, for he had slept in it a fortnight. 
and over this a much dirtier ribbed dimity waistcoat, which had not visited the wash-tub for a whole twelve-month past. To finish his picture, he wore on his feet a pair of darned blue satin slippers, made out of the remnants of one of his wife's petticoats. So much for Sir Thomas. Close by him sat his lady, combing her hoary locks before the same looking-glass, and dressed in a short bedgown, which hardly reached down to her middle. A night-shift, which likewise had almost forgot the washing-tub, shrouded the hidden beauties of her person. She was without stays, without a hoop, without ruffles, and without any linen about her neck, to hide those redundant charms which age had a little embrowned. This was their dress and attitude when their daughter burst into the room, and earnestly called upon them to admire the beauties of a lapdog, her sudden entrance alarming them with the expectation of some mighty matter, Sir Thomas, in turning hastily around, had the misfortune to cut himself with his razor, which, putting him in a passion, when he came to know the ridiculous occasion of all this hurry. "'Pox, take the girl!' cries he. "'Get away, child, and don't interrupt me with your lapdogs. I am in a hurry here to go to court this morning, and you take up my time with silly tittle-tattle about a lapdog. Do you see here, foolish girl? You have made me cut myself with your ridiculous nonsense. Get away, I tell you. What a figure do you think I shall make at the levees with such a scar upon my face? Bless me, Papa, cries the young lady. I protest I am vastly sorry for your misfortune, but I am sure you'll forgive if you will but look on this delightful heavenly little jewel of a dog. Dum your little jewel of a dog, replies the knight. Prithee stand out of my way. I tell you I am in a hurry to go to court, and therefore prithee don't trouble me with your whelps and your puppy-dogs. Oh, monstrous! How can you call him such cruel names? cries the daughter. I am amazed at you, papa, for your want of taste. How can any living creature be so utterly void of taste as not to admire such a beautiful little monkey? Do, dear mamma, look at him. I am sure you must admire him, though papa is so shamefully blind and so utterly void of all manner of taste. Why, sure, my dear, you are mad to-day, replied the mother. One would think you was absolutely fuddled this morning. Taste, indeed. I declare you are void of all manner of understanding, whatever your taste may be, to interrupt us thus, when you see we are both in a hurry to be dressed. Prithee, girl, learn a little decency and good manners, before you pretend to talk of taste. The young lady being reprimanded thus on both sides, began to look extremely foolish, when a servant entered to inform them that Mr. Chase was in the dining-room. "'Aye, aye, go!' cries Sir Thomas. "'Go and entertain him with your taste, until I am able to wait on him. Tell Mr. Chase I happen unfortunately to be dressing, but I'll be with him in a moment of time.' Miss Frippery then, muttering some little scorn, hurried into the next room with the dog in her arms, to see if she could not persuade her lover, for so he was, to discover more taste than her parents. And here indeed she had better success, for this gentleman, who was a great sportsman and fox-hunter, was consequently a great connoisseur in dogs. He was likewise what is called a very pretty young fellow about town, 
and had a taste so exactly correspondent with that of a lady, that it is no wonder they agreed on the same objects of admiration. Here follows his character. Mr. Chase, usually called Jack Chase among his intimates, possessed an estate of fifteen hundred pounds a year, which was just sufficient to furnish him with a variety of riding frocks, jockey boots, Kevin Huller hats, and coach whips. His great ambition was to be deemed a jemmy fellow, for which purpose he appeared always in the morning in a new market frock, decorated with a great number of green, red, or blue capes. He wore a short bob wig, neat buckskin breeches, white silk stockings, and carried a cane switch in his hand. He kept a phaeton chaise and four bay cattle, a stable of hunters, and a pack of hounds in the country. The reputation of being a coachman and driving a set of horses with skill, or in his own phrase, doing his business clean, he esteemed the greatest character in human life, and thought himself seated on the very pinnacle of glory when he was mounted up in a high chase at a horse-race. Newmarket had not a more active spirit, where he was frequently his own jockey, and boasted always, as a singular accomplishment, that he did not ride above eight stone and a half. Though he was a little man, and not very healthy in his constitution, he desired to be thought capable of the greatest fatigue, and was always laying wagers of the vast journeys he could perform in a day. He had likewise an ambition to be esteemed a man of consummate debauch, and endeavored to persuade you that he never went to bed without first drinking three or four bottles of claret, lying with as many whores, and knocking down as many watchmen. In the mornings he attended Dr. Broughton's amphitheaters, and in the evenings, if he was drunk in time, which indeed he seldom failed to be, he came behind the scenes of the playhouse in the middle of the third act, and there heroically exposed himself to the hisses of the galleries. Whenever he met you, he began constantly with describing his last night's debauch, or related the arrival of a new whore upon the town, or entertained you with the exploits of his bay cattle. And if you declined conversing with him on these three illustrious subjects, he swore you as a fellow of no soul or genius, and ever afterwards shunned your company. Having a hunting seat in the neighborhood of Sir Thomas Frippery, he often visited in the family of that worthy knight, and at last made proposals of marriage to the young lady, which were favorable enough received, as well by her as her parents, who, it must be confessed, had a very laudable regard for Mr. Chase's estate. To this jemmy young gentleman, who was now seated in Sir Thomas's dining-room, Miss Frippery came running with the dog in her arms, and much sparkling conversation passed between them, which perhaps might not be unentertaining if we were to relate it. But as it turned wholly upon polite taste in dress, and the mode, we confess ourselves unequal to so difficult and delicate a task. End of Book 2, Chapter 4